Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast and a very happy new year to you all. My name's Danny. And my name's Victoria. And today we're going to be talking about families. The festive season might seem like a distant memory to you now, but we want to bring an essence of it back to you today. All of you, I'm sure, would have spent your Christmas with your family and loved ones, and it may have been manic, stressful and chaotic. But when it comes to family, it's worth it. Family means a lot of different things to lots of different people, and family relationships, or a lack thereof, are a constant source of fascination for authors and readers alike. Take, for example, the opening line of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And the more real and imperfect, the better, we say. Lots of our authors think so anyway. After a good dinner, one can forgive anybody, even one's own relations. Oscar Wilde from A Woman of No Importance. Families are messy. Immortal families are eternally messy. Sometimes the best we can do is to remind each other that we're related, for better or worse, and try to keep the maiming and killing to a minimum. Rick Riordan, The Sea of Monsters. We are all four of us blood relatives, and we speak a kind of esoteric family language, a sort of semantic geometry in which the shortest distance between any two points is a foolish circle. J.D. Salinger, Franny and Zoe. So today we have a lineup of authors and books that focus on families or bring families together. First up, we have Taye Selassie's novel, Ghana Must Go, which centres around a very fractal family indeed. The Sais, a Nigerian Ghanaian family living in the United States, are doing well until the day their father is a victim of a grave injustice. Ashamed, he abandons his wife Fola and their little boys and girls, causing the family to fracture and spiral into the world, New York, London, West Africa, New England, on uncertain, troubled journeys until, many years later, tragedy unites them. Here's an extract from the audiobook edition. Those houses had seemed so impressive, imposing, set back from the road on low slopes or with gates, brookline brick with black shutters or Tudors with turrets, ten bedrooms at least, as compared to their five. But it wasn't this grandeur that dazzled her mute. What bewitched her was all those warm windows, the glow, all those warm, wealthy people she peered at inside, with their dining rooms yellowed by chandelier light, or their bedrooms turned amber against the night darkness, against the outsideness. The families implied, for though they too lived there, her family, in Brookline, not five or ten minutes from where she now passed, she had never once felt what she saw in those windows, that warm, yellow, glowing insideness of home. Even in the beginning, before things went pear-shaped, before Kahinde came in from the car without sound, up the stairs, down the hall, to her room where she'd been watching, where she was waiting in the windowsill, sat down and wept. There was the sense in her house of an ongoing effort, of an upswing mid-motion, a thing being built. A successful family, with the six of them involved in the effort, all striving for the common goal, as yet unreached. They were unfinished, in rehearsal, a production in progress, each performing his role with an affected aplomb and with the stress of performance ever-present for all, as a soft sort of sound in the background, a hum. There was him, straining daily to perform the provider, and follows Star Turner's suburban housewife, and Olu's as fastidious come favoured first son, the artist, gifted, awkward, and the baby. Then she, 
determined to deliver a flawless performance, to fly from the stage chased by thunderous applause. Darling daughter of champions, elementary school standout, the brightest of pupils in bright-eyed class pictures. No one asked her to do this. Not him. Never follow. No one mapped their joint progress toward the one goal. Were they there yet? Had they made it? Had they become a successful family? But she knew to keep going, to keep striving, by the hum. The families in the windows were successful families already, had finished the heavy lifting generations ago, were not building or straining or making an effort. The goal had been reached. They could rest now. Calm down. At night, through their windows, she saw them there, finished, with silence between them in place of the hum. Placid familiness, captured in paint above mantles, with feet up on cushions, at rest and at home. But how could she answer when Foller would ask her, about to start laughing, perpetually amused? What are you always staring at back there, my darling? The houses. The houses? You have a house of your own. But not a home, was the difference she saw even then, peering in from the car, from outside, as they passed. And saw now as she paused on the sidewalk outside, lighting a cigarette, the cliché, but not a home. Is it you? He had cracked the door open at the top of the stoop to look down at the sidewalk. At first she didn't turn. She stared down his block at his neighbour's lit windows, thinking partially of how she looked to him. Short white fur coat. For God's sake, it's freezing out. What are you looking at? He followed her gaze down the block. Now she turned. And there he was, lovely and solid and ruffled, in sweatpants and sweater, an incongruous scarf. It is I, she said, blowing out smoke with a flourish. Did you miss me? With aching. Come here. And she went. The reader, Adjua Ando, had a remarkably similar experience to the characters in the story, she talks to Roy McMillan about home and what it's like to communicate with a parent who's from somewhere else. My father is from Ghana. Uh, he was a journalist. Uh, he ended up having to leave the country rather abruptly in '58. came to England, uh, uh, with the notion being that at some point when it was uh, uh, safer to go back to Ghana, he would go home. Uh, met my mother, uh, got married, had me and my brother... So we grew up with the notion all through the 60s into the early 70s that at some point soon we would be going home. And uh, the Cotswolds or Leeds or wherever it was we were happened to be living at the time was just a sort of aberration, a lovely aberration, but an aberration nonetheless. And at some point we would be returning to our proper home. Um, Dad drew up plans for the house that uh, we now have in Accra in 1970. Uh, and he finished... Uh, building it and got it blessed by the Bishop of Accra in 2004. And almost a precise parallel exactly. of the beginning exactly. of, the, of the story. It's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. So uh, um, this book, Ghana Must Go, resonated with me. I mean, uh, Taye is, is younger than me uh, and the, the time shifts are slightly different, but, but actually it's the same story. And actually it wouldn't even need to be Ghana. You could be from 
you know, a another place anywhere in the world who ends up living somewhere else. Um, but, you know, within the framework of this is temporary, soon we are going home, wherever home happens to be. So for me, what's really interesting about this story um, is the conversation she has throughout about what it means to be the child of someone from a another place living in another place uh, and maybe with a parent from yet another place and where is home and who are you and where do you belong and, and where do you fit in and how actually do you how do you communicate with the parent from somewhere else um, how can they share their you know the life that's in their head the lived life of their childhood and their teens and their and their early life in that other place with you for whom it is such a strange and uh, distant shore um and I, I think that's what she deals with very particularly and how you and your siblings may differ in your relationship with the old country and the current country or the next country you might be going to and how you feel about the country you're in, uh, what choices that may um, um, cause you to make about where you want to end up. And also the whole notion of home. Again, you were, you know, you were yeah. living in the Chilterns and Leeds, born, brought up in... In, in Cotswolds, yeah. yeah. Uh, sorry, the, the Cotswolds. Yeah. But the but Ghana was home. Did you feel that though? Did you sense that Ghana was home, or did you not join that? that sort no, of... I did. No, I did have a sense that Ghana was home, but I also had a sense that the Cotswolds was home, and Leeds United was my football team, so that was also home. Um, but uh, I, I think it's about. I think in the end, it's about your emotional connection to that parent, because if that emotional connection is strong, then I think you have a stronger sense of that other place. You have an interest in it because you know it formed somebody who is dear to you. I think if there is any conflict in that emotional connection, then that creates a conflict um, in your relationship to that other place that is their home. Um, and at some point you have to resolve that it just personally for yourself, I exclusive of your beloved other parent, as it were. Um, uh, and I... I I, I think that there's a deal of that going on in this book as well. You also mentioned when we were recording it mm. that you felt every now and again there were these little kind of sparks of intimate connection with particular moments between the characters, whether it was to do with the attitude of a grandmother or aunt towards you, or even the the behaviour of one of the one of the sort of uh, the, the, the principal characters. These little moments where suddenly you would say, "That's me," or that something like that just happened to me. It seems yes, to be very particular. It's, I think it's in that sort of personal schizophrenia that happens about who you are and where you come from. Um, I I do. I remember quite vividly going to Ghana in the mid-70s when it was fine for us to all go back and meeting all my amazing, lovely relatives and travelling around the country and seeing all these different places that had, were really special to my dad. Um, but not quite appreciating the specialness of it because I was 13 and harumphing, you know. Oh, everything was too hot, the food was a bit funny, all that was going on. But at the same time, there was, a, there was this, there were wonderful little things that happened, like I'd spent my childhood hating my knees. Uh, and in all f um, physical ed lessons, I would have my, you know, hockey socks would be jammed up over my knees so nobody would see my knees because they just looked weird. They didn't look like other girls' knees. And then you get to Ghana and the country is awash with knees, of familiar knees. And, you know, it's like, hurrah, look, here are mine too. Because, you know, you've, I've got Ghanaian legs. I've got Ghanaian knees. Um, and, they, you know, and there are little, there are little mo moments like that in, in, in the book where you, you recognise something that's been unrecognisable before. On the other hand, going 
into Ghana, having had, you know, varying degrees of um, you're not from here um, in my childhood in, in England, rural 60s and 70s, remember, um, to go to Ghana and think, OK, well, this I'm going to go there and I'll, you know, I won't get any of that there because I'll, I'll be just a, another black face amongst many. Um, and actually getting there and being called um, Runi, which sort of means white person or English person or certainly not Ghanaian person. And, and and I remember, you know, having particular conversations with my little brother about, well, um, but we don't belong there and we don't belong here. Where do we belong? And I think this what this book does brilliantly as it goes, you know what, you are not a, a lone island. There are many of us who are saying, well, where do we belong then? Um, and actually, you can either take that as I don't belong anywhere or you can say I belong in a, a, a multitude of places. How fabulous. That's something that, that Tayo Selassie had had addressed in a, a significant essay that she wrote yes. about this, this particular day, I suppose. And you were saying that, to some extent, it doesn't matter which country you're talking about. Does it, does it feel significant to you that this book has been written about your... a, a country that might be considered one of, one of your homelands? I love the fact that it talks about familiar places and there are familiar names and things. That just You know, for me, that's just a personal treat because that doesn't happen very often but actually I think um, the conversation that uh, Taye is having as a, as a child of um, is a conversation that many children of could have. I remember growing up with um, two friends whose father was Pakistani and whose mother was English but had grown up in India at the end of the sort of you know colonial uh, time over there uh, and and these children and my brother and I had exactly the same conversations about where are we from and, and you know where we belong um, you know as little mixed race orphans that's kind of what we felt um, uh, uh, and so I don't think that it, uh, the fact that it's about Ghana changes that conversation in a sort of macro way in a micro way it's just delightful for me um, uh, you know, I, the geography, um, the, the food, the the the, the humour, you know, lots of things like that. I just, I just loved, and so it's lovely to connect with that. That was Ajoa Ando talking about her experiences of growing up outside her family's home country, which she shares with the protagonist of Ghana Must Go. The audiobook, which she narrates, is available now along with the hardback, paperback, and ebook editions. From a Ghanaian family, we head to a family story set in New Zealand. Survivor, the newest novel from Leslie Pierce, is the third book in her best-selling Bell series, in which the family is a key but dynamic theme throughout. Unlike her mother Bell, who had her fair share of struggle and hardship in her life, Mariette is strong-willed and almost a little spoilt as a young woman, who then redeems herself when put in jeopardy. In the next clip, Leslie briefly describes why she decided to write about Mariette and continue the Carrera family story. I'm Leslie Pierce and I'm here to tell you about my new hardback, Survivor. Survivor is the third book in the Bell series. To go back to Bell, you remember that she met Etienne when she was in France and we always hoped there might be a romance between them. The Promise, we went on where she was with, married to Jimmy but then World War I broke out and she went off to be an ambulance driver where she met up with Etienne again. And that book ended with them going to New Zealand to live. Survivor starts in New Zealand. With Mariette is now 17 and it's her story. And the reason it's her story is that Bella and Etienne, however lovely, are getting a bit old. And I thought you'd all like to know what happened afterwards to their children and later, and also get a glimpse of how Bella and Etienne are getting on in New Zealand. I really enjoyed writing it, and I hope you're going to enjoy reading it too.
That was Leslie Pierce introducing her latest book, Survivor, which will be available in hardback, ebook, and audiobook next month. We can't mention families without bringing up the subject of pets. They play an enormous part in family life and we love them unconditionally. A couple of years ago, John Bradshaw explored our relationship with dogs in his book In Defence of Dogs and has recently turned his attention to helping us understand the behaviour of cats and cat sense. Presently, cats are the most popular pets in the world. I'm personally a cat person. What about you? Oh, no, I'm a dog person. (laughs) We can never get on. (laughs) Well, here's John Bradshaw to tell us why he thinks that is. My name's John Bradshaw and the book is called Cat Sense, How the New Feline Science Can Make You a Better Friend to Your Pet. And it's the follow-up to Dog Sense, but of course this time it's about cats. And specifically it's about how all the new science around cats can enable you to understand your cat better and also how to treat your cat better. I think there are possibly two reasons why cats are so popular today. One is that they're simply a very convenient pet. They're easier to keep in towns and cities. They're much easier to keep than dogs are. You don't have to walk them. Uh, But also, I think they're very cute. I mean, I think they have features which trigger very instinctive reactions in people uh, and make them want to look after them. Cats have a a long history with mankind. They they go back about 10,000 years, right to the dawn of agriculture, when we started encouraging them to come into our uh, barns and so on to hunt the mice that had accumulated there. So the cat has basically got almost 10,000 years of history as a hunter behind it, and and we've been encouraging them to do that all of that time. Um, So it's something that they find very difficult to switch off. And of course, some cats are still kept as hunters. Meanwhile, in towns and cities, cat owners suddenly become revulsed by the idea that their cat is going to drag um, a bloody mouse in through the cat flap. It's just not something that cats can change overnight. Cats don't have very expressive faces, uh, in direct contrast to the dog, which has an incredibly expressive face and an expressive tail and everything else. Um, Cats evolved as solitary animals. They only really became social when they started their association with mankind. And so um, they don't actually have a full repertoire of facial expressions in the way that we do. So they can seem rather aloof indeed, but um, there doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that they don't love us, but they, because they do. Their first point of attachment is to the place where they live, certainly, and that's really why cats, for example, try and find their own way home if their owners move house. The first thing you need to do if you want a lovable cat is to pick the right one. I mean, cats vary tremendously in personality and also they vary in the extent to which they've been introduced to people uh, when they're kittens. So if you go to a farm and pick up an eight-week-old kitten that hasn't been handled very much, it will be much harder to form a bond with that kitten, or at least that kitten will find it much harder to form a bond with you than if you go to a place where the, the kittens are living in a house and have been handled a lot. So that's the, the, really the first thing. They learn how to interact with people between about four to eight weeks of age. Uh, and then they learn a lot more after that. But what they learn at that very early stage is very, very important. Cats naturally run away from things that they feel slightly anxious about. So by imposing yourself on a cat, you'll probably actually make the cat more nervous rather than less nervous. What you need to do is let the cat come to you and then reward it for coming to you with something really tasty, a little bit of food that the cat really likes. It's kind of bribery, but it works. And uh, once you've done that a few times, you will find the cat coming up to you spontaneously and then accepting a tickle behind the ears and all the the sorts of things that cats like. It's a process that has to be done gradually, but it does work.
Well, cats, I think, face a couple of challenges uh, in the modern world. I mean, they are very convenient pets, but um, because we're keeping them in ever-increasing numbers, they inevitably bump into other cats that they don't know. People in the street, you know, many people in the street will have a cat. The cats didn't choose to live next door to each other, even if the people did. And so they have difficulty sometimes in getting on with the neighbour's cat. One of the main reasons for cats being taken to the vet uh, is, is for wounds sustained during cat fights. Um, some of the other reasons are things like skin problems and cystitis, both of which are now known to be made worse by the stress of living next door to a cat that they don't get on with. Cats are descended from solitary ancestors. They, um, uh, they don't really have the social graces that dogs do, so they do find it rather difficult to get on with other cats, particularly ones that don't like them. My favourite uh, mysterious fact about cats is that they have two noses. And I don't mean two nostrils, of course they have two nostrils, but they have another nose between what we see as their nose, the nostrils, and the roof of their mouth. And they use this to analyse the smell of other cats, to see who's in the neighbourhood. And you can tell when your cat's using that, when it walks up to something, maybe a twig in the garden that another cat has scent marked, and curls its top lip back. It's a piece of behaviour that doesn't even have an English name. It's known technically by its German name, Flemen. Uh, and what's happening there is the cat is opening up its second nose to sample the smell of that other cat and store it away for future use. Those were a few insights into the science of cats from John Bradshaw that you can read more about in his book, Cat Sense, which is out now. Next, Jojo Moyes, the international best-selling author of Me Before You and The Girl You Left Behind, introduces her latest book, The One Plus One, which is centred around a chaotic family life. The One Plus One, like many of my books, is quite hard to describe succinctly. It's part road trip, part love story, partly the story of an unusual family that perhaps like a lot of families these days doesn't necessarily fit into the 2.4 mould. Um, but essentially it's a story about hope and love and all those big issues that I try to encompass in all my books, yeah, with perhaps a few laughs thrown in. Jess, who is the single mother character in The One Plus One, is kind of quietly heroic. She's one of these women who is just battling through every day um, with very little help, trying to keep her children well and happy and to earn enough money just to get by, really. She's an irrepressible optimist and she's incredibly resourceful, but she doesn't always make great choices and this is at the heart of the book. Two things I have in common with Jess. Uh, I'm pretty persistent. If I, if I set my heart on something, I'll just keep plugging away at it. And I think that's pretty much the history of my publishing career. And also that I would do anything for my children. I would kill anybody who hurt them or drive to the other end of the country in a car that is illegally insured um, just to do something that they needed to do. I didn't find it hard to write the, the voices of Nikki and Tansy. Um, I'm the parent of three children, two of whom are 15 and 12, uh, which are not that dissimilar in age to two of those characters. And I think one of the things I, I have been surprised by as the parent of teenagers or near teenagers is actually how nice they are. They, they get demonised a lot in the press, but they're actually really funny and quirky and they're good company. And that's some of what I was trying to get across with those two characters, which actually there's, there's nothing to be afraid of with teenagers. Um, but there's an awful lot to admire. My most memorable road trip was on a book tour of Australia and New Zealand and 
I mean, we sound a bit like the family in the one plus one. Uh, my husband was working freelance at the time, so he came and my three children came and the youngest was six months old at the time. So this poor rep had to drive us from one end of South Island to the other end of North Island over a period of days or weeks, um, with me stopping every two hours to breastfeed, um, various needs of small children having to be taken into account. And, um, and it was the most fun. I still remember just loving the scenery, loving the place and being completely unfazed by the completely nuts nature of the whole thing. That was Jojo Moyes talking about The One Plus One, which is out next month. To end this episode, we have a reading from the fantastic debut author Hannah Beckerman. Her book, The Dead Wife's Handbook, portrays an alternative perspective on family and coping with the loss of a loved one. I didn't mean to die so young. I don't suppose anyone does. I don't suppose many people would willingly fail to reach their 37th birthday or their 8th wedding anniversary or see out their daughter's 7th year on the planet. I suspect there aren't many people who would voluntarily relinquish that, given the choice. But that's the point. We don't get a choice, do we? One day you're leaving a restaurant with your husband, conscious of the future only so far as your certainty that it will arrive and you will be part of it, preoccupied with the promotion you've just been celebrating and the summer holiday you've been planning and the child's progress you've been discussing. An evening when your happiness is due only in part to the bottle of champagne you ordered, but is mostly a result of those rare occasions when the pieces of the jigsaw slot into place and you see with clarity the picture of the life you've been trying to create for the past weeks, months, years. And the next moment you're slumped on the floor with only the briefest awareness of how you got there and yet the sharpest recognition of the hot, tight pain invading your left arm and marching on towards your chest. I remember thinking that no one survives pain like this. After my heart had decided it was no longer for this world, Long before the paramedics arrived, long before that night even began it turns out, a heart that had been secretly destined to expire prematurely for as long as it had been beating, I found myself here. I don't actually know where here is. If I believed in heaven, then I'd have been disappointed if this was it. There's no one else around, no reunions with loved ones, no winged beings checking people in or out. I'm completely alone and lonely, more lonely than I ever knew possible. There are no gardens, no rainbows, no magical worlds like those at the top of the faraway tree. Just whiteness spreading out into the infinite beyond, as far as the eye can see, in every conceivable direction. The only respite in this interminable void is when occasionally, sporadically, the whiteness beneath me clears, like fog receding begrudgingly on the coldest of winter mornings, and I'm granted a dress-circle view of the living world to watch my family getting on with life without me. Who grants it, or why, or how, I've no idea. It's both a blessing and a curse, being able to see and hear the people I've left behind, the people I love, but in silence, invisible, impotent. I'm lucky, I know, to be able to observe fragments of their lives, to listen to their conversations, to pretend, even if only fleetingly, that I'm part of their lives still. But it's painful too, the inability to console them when they're sad, to laugh with them when they're happy, or simply to hold and be held by them, to give and take refuge in the comfort of physical intimacy. Perhaps it wouldn't be quite as bewildering if it weren't so unreliable, this incomprehensible access I have to the living. Sometimes my time with them can last a whole day, at others, just a matter of minutes. Sometimes I'm kept waiting only a few hours between visits. At others, long, solitary weeks go by, without so much as a glimpse of the real world. 
I spend inordinate stretches of time alone in the impenetrable whiteness, wondering what I might have missed in my enforced absence, although, in truth, I have very little conception of the passage of days here. And it's frustratingly unpredictable too. Sometimes I'm allowed to observe that which I most want to be a part of, while at others the air clears suddenly and I've no choice but to witness that which I'd most like to miss. It can be cruel like that. I wonder occasionally, when I let my fears and fantasies get the better of me, whether my presence here is a privilege or a punishment, whether it's a passing phenomenon or is set to continue for all eternity, whether there may be a future in which I'll be something other than a passive spectator of a life I no longer lead. Sometimes I wonder whether any of what I'm seeing is actually real. In moments of desperation, I find myself questioning whether I am, in fact, dead at all. I begin to hope that I'm in a temporary coma and that the whiteness and the loneliness and the lives of the living I'm observing are nothing more than products of my unconscious fantasies. I have a lot of time to think about these things. I wonder, too, whether it's more distressing to watch your family in mourning for you or whether it will be worse when, one day, they stop grieving and start living painlessly without you. I try to imagine how I'll feel when I begin to occupy that place which all dead people must dread, that distant, rarely visited corner of someone's mind, neatly packed away in a box marked memories. I often find myself thinking back to those conversations couples have about death, the conversations where each proclaims that should they die first, they'd want their bereaved to carry on with life, meet someone new, be happy. I know now how delusional those conversations are, how untruthful. I know now that the only thing in the world worse than dying is the fear that one day you'll be replaced and that life will continue with only the faintest echo of your existence. Because to our loved ones, at least, we're all irreplaceable, aren't we? That was Hannah Beckerman reading an extract from her debut novel, The Dead Wife's Handbook, which will be released next month. And that's it from The Penguin Podcast. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find them on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.